In the Loop is brought to you by the Rappaport Academy. Know your industry. Welcome to In the Loop, the podcast that takes rough ideas and turns them into polished gems. And it's all about the diamond industry. Who knew? I'm your host, David Ehrlich, and today we're looking back at 2017. In a year full of big pinks, giant rough, sneaky synthetics, and of course one royal engagement, feels like this year has given us a wealth of news and excitement. Now we'll try to put this year into perspective and get an idea of what will be our biggest challenges and opportunities as we start 2018. We also have an interview with Mr. Diamond Marketing himself, Jean-Marc Lieberherr, head of the Diamond Producers Association, who, in what I believe is his podcast debut, is going to give us all the ins and outs of this year's Real is Rare campaign. Hold on to your hats. It is going to be an action-packed show. Guiding me through this bountiful year of diamond and jewelry news is our panel of experts from Rappaport's editorial team, led by our accomplished editor-in-chief, Sonia Esther-Sultani. Bonjour, Sonia. Bonjour, David. Also here, Rappaport's news editor and senior analyst, whose enthusiasm shines forth like the sun's reflection off his bald head, welcome Avi Kravitz. Thank you, David. Be kind. I've got my head covering that bald head. I don't need any reminders. And to my right, we have our news reporter, Rappaport resident pun master-in-chief, Joshua Friedman. Hi, David. Hi, Joshua. Before we get started, I have to tell you that this podcast would not have been possible without the support of Rappaport Academy. Rappaport Academy recently launched an online course that is giving students the opportunity to learn everything they need to know about the diamond industry at a time and place of their own convenience. It's a little like this podcast. But if In the Loop has left you with a thirst for more knowledge about the diamond industry, go to rappaportacademy.com and sign up for Fundamentals of Diamond Trading, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. This year saw a set of big concepts come up repeatedly in the news, and I think it's safe to say they made an impact on the industry. Questions around traceability and accountability, synthetics place in the industry, omni-channel marketing and the adoption of tech, and of course, the mark women have made both socially and professionally on the diamond business. But it does beg the question, what can the industry do to give people that sense of security and knowledge that their diamonds are going to be conflict-free, processed in an ethical way, and never used as a money-laundering tool. Well, that's where I think, David, in the last year, in 2017, this became a real theme in the industry. With um, And I think the GIA played a very strong role in that with their Minds to Market program, where they are sourcing rough. They're working with Elrosa as one example to get rough before it's supplied to their clients and marking the diamonds in its rough form so that they can track it all along the supply chain and at the end of the day give the consumers that guarantee that this is a responsibly sourced diamond. Well, Joshua, I know that you spend a fair amount of time reading the news, uh, listening to what companies are saying and doing. What other companies, what other organizations have taken an interest in traceability and in creating a sustainable traceability system? It's an interesting issue. I think if you were to type the word blockchain into... Google News, which I did yesterday, and, and you'll see that everyone's writing about blockchain, and the diamond industry seems to be fairly well ahead of other industries in that sense, and that and there's also already a lot of talk about how blockchain can be used to improve traceability and to ensure there's no lying going on. 
uh, briefly, blockchain is, is a way that you can track transactions that have gone through a particular uh, trading platform, a particular trading community. And De Beers have, uh, in the process of trying to introduce some sort of blockchain platform uh, for the diamond industry, which will get rid of a lot of the problems that Avi was talking about, that um, people are concerned that they don't know for sure where their diamond came from. Um, but blockchain would be actually a very good way of tracking. And in addition to De Beers, we've, uh, Al Rosa have said the same thing. We also heard from a, a laboratory in, in Switzerland yesterday who were trying to do the same thing with coloured gemstones. So it seems that this is uh, one way in which the, the trade could um, make some progress in tracking. I see that we're hearing a lot about this in the mining sector, in the labs, but is there anything coming from retail, Sonia? We saw a few examples. I mean, the mine-to-market concept is definitely gaining some momentum because you want to give the diamond to the bride-to-be, but you also want to give her the whole photo album of the diamond from the moment he was born to the moment he, he grew to the moment he was cut to the moment he became this beautiful, um, shining, lovingly design ring. So retailer Chow Thai Phuc in Hong Kong launched a, a T-Mark. So they, it's a bit of a take on the four C's. Instead of being the four C's, it's a four T's. And it's traceable, transparent, truthful and thoughtful diamond. So it's really, you know, and it's more than a marketing pitch. I think that's really trying to show the consumer that they're getting the most ethical diamond possible. And also the, there's more to the diamonds, as Avi said. And I think that's uh, where brands can really differentiate themselves as well, to, um, because that's the message behind a brand. Like Charto Fook is doing with its T-Mark, Jared, which is part of the signature, is, um, has their chosen brand, which also claims a, uh, a traceability as aspect to show that it's responsibly sourced. And that underlines the promise that a brand can give to their consumers. Are there any concerns that these blockchain techniques or that any of these traceability techniques might find themselves exploited by people who are not interested in ethical diamonds? Well, I think the idea of the blockchain is the safeguard against that sort of practice and it's a way of securing or enhancing the the transparency within the trade because it keeps a record of transactions that a diamond has undergone. And uh, as Joshua mentioned, that the diamond industry is maybe ahead of the curve uh, in this area. I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with you, Joshua, but I think it's true is that uh, why it's gaining so much interest is because the diamond industry is almost tailor-made for blockchain because it's, it, it involves such a complex network of trading a diamond exchanges hands so often that it sometimes becomes complicated to track the journey of that diamond. And so blockchain is, uh, or the industry is working through blockchain to solve that challenge. So maybe it's not quite a shining example yet. There goes the pun, (laughs) nice. (laughs) So, I mean, that also helps to answer a second question uh, around undisclosed synthetics, which people are always concerned about, and the place of synthetics in the industry. And I personally think blockchain has a big can have a big impact on that, but we know the industry is pretty preoccupied with synthetics. If you don't mind me jumping the gun, Joshua, you recently put together a story about the top news stories of the year, and in that story, if I remember correctly, synthetics dominated. Yes, David. It seems to be the case that um, when we write the word synthetics in a headline, everyone wants to read it, and uh, it's clearly something that people are, are worrying about. And we did put together this top 10 stories um, from 2017, 
And a good, I think, four of the stories were about synthetics and and grading-related matters to do with synthetics. And I think the theme from those stories was that the uh, synthetics producers are getting better and better at hiding the diamonds are synthetic. So they're putting various things which gemologists call overgrowths, which is basically a little layer on top of a diamond that makes it look like it's, it's natural. And in one case, a, a diamond actually had a, a blue overgrowth and managed to get a, a grading report that, uh, that reported the diamond to be a genuine natural blue diamond. And uh, I think it was later the GIA that spotted this and, and put it out a, an alert to, to the industry about this. Sonia, do you think we have reason to be concerned by the advancement in synthetic technology? I think like all sciences, things are developing in a way that actually you're getting better and better at producing something. So obviously the synthetics that were produced in the 60s are not the synthetics that are produced now. The colors, the range, the, also the way they, they can actually imitate the real thing, the natural diamonds, I think definitely is a source of concern. But I think that we can also look at it from another point of view and say that, you know, the more testing the more development in testing synthetics that will make things clearer for the industry, but also a lot of synthetic companies are actually also disclosing what they're doing. So I think the industry is very concerned, worried for good reason, but there's also a more, I think people are more aware of it. So that's the most important thing. And I think the way that people hit our new stories, you can see that's really because they want to know what's the new threat, how are they doing it, how are they getting like sneaky ways into uh, passing synthetic diamonds, lab grub diamonds for natural ones. So since we've been talking a lot about tech and just to switch gears on tech a little bit, how does all of this technology feed into retail and the retail sector? So I think that's the side I like about technology. The startups, the innovative uh, technologies that are put in place to make the experience of the consumer more exciting, more accessible, more fun and ultimately to sell more diamonds. So you can see, for example, I think one of the big stories this year was Signet buying James Allen's technology uh, branch, R2Net, which is an Israeli startup. And you can see that's really because they realized that they needed a new technology and a new new approach to consumer and uh, something a bit more sleeker and also a definitely much more fun experience. For the consumer, you can actually look at your hand with the diamond on an app. So it creates a much more fun way of buying a diamond. And you can see why this type of technology would be of interest to to big global companies like Signet. So when I hear about R2Net and when I hear about the sale to Signet and all of these new initiatives, a term that keeps cropping up is omnichannel. And Avi... I don't really know what Omnichannel is. Do you think you could help me out here? Well, Omnichannel is the combining of e-commerce with your in-store presence for a retailer. So if they have an online presence and a brick-and-mortar store, it's how do they mesh those two? How do they translate the traffic that they're getting online to greater traffic in their stores? Do you think Omnichannel could include podcasts one day? I think it already includes podcasts, and I think it's an overall view of the market, really. So if you are selling more via social media even, then that's part of your omni-channel platform. Or if you're using social media to drive traffic to your stores, then that is your omni-channel platform, I guess. Can I clarify? Avi, spot on. The word omni is in a Latin word meaning all. Omnibus means for all, which is where we get the word bus from. So when people are buying jewellery, um, on their smartphones, on the bus, they're actually doing what whoever <laughs> invented the word omnibus originally wanted. 
I'm sure. But to the point is that Signet bought um, bought James Allen, RTNet, which includes also their imaging technology, I think is probably the more important player there. Through Sagoma is the name of the James Allen sister company that uh, to enhance that omni-channel offering because we know Signet has um, has such a large presence in the US but um, they were they were somewhat caught off guard in 2016 holiday season the the not so sudden rise in online buying and i think in the last 2 years this um, idea of buying a piece of jewelry um, via the internet has really gained traction because there is such a strong um, look and feel aspect to buying a piece of jewelry. So it was naturally going to be a, a late adapter to the online sales trend. But, um, but that's changing very quickly and it's changing because of the technology is getting better and it's easier and more attractive um, and fun for consumers to buy online. But they still like to get the trust of the jeweler in store. So there, there is that combination and that omni for all aspect um, of the purchase. So Sonia, what should jewelers be doing to become omni-channel sellers? That's a very good question, David. They should hire millennials who know how to use the internet, social media, create a nice e-commerce platform. And I think that we heard a lot of uh, jurors when we were at JCK last year, that it's not just about hiring people who know about jewelry, but it's about people who know about technology, tech people who can actually work for a juror. So I remember queuing for to go to an event and we had like this team from a big retailer in Minnesota. And one of them was actually the new social media person, but he was also dealing with the actual e-commerce and we started chatting and you could see that actually he didn't know so much about jewelry when he joined the company, but he brought all this great experience, great technological skills, understanding of what consumer want and how consumers use technology now to, to purchase in a luxury field. So I think that's, that's it. It's a juror that knows how to hire the right people to help him with this technology. So I'm all for hiring more millennials, of course. In the meantime, we're also seeing another hiring trend starting up in the diamond and jewelry industries. And 2017 really actually was a sea change in the field of gender relations and sexual politics in general. Of course, everyone's really focused on the clamor and cries around the Me Too movement, but a series of high-profile appointments of female leaders at jewelry, retail, and mining firms seems to point to a more subtle shift as well. And Sonia, do you think the industry is looking at women differently these days? I think there's a great shift in the industry. I think last year we saw Signet hiring their CEO, Virginia Drossos, so big retailer hiring a woman at the helm. You can see a lot of appointments in recent months. We received news from appointments. A global jewelry head at Bonhams is a lady. She's been working for the auction house for a long time, but now she's heading, actually having a bigger role. A woman is also the head of jewelry and watches at Sotheby's. So, you know, it's not like making a list of all the ladies who got into key roles, but what we can see and we can be really happy about is like more women getting to the head of these companies, bringing uh, also a lot of expertise. It's not just because they're women that we should be happy about it, but because they actually bring a lot of skills, experience and uh, knowledge to their role. So we need more of them, but I think that's why we should celebrate that a lot of these women come with uh, tons of experience, tons of skills, maybe a new vision and new approach to the role. So I think that's why it's exciting. So Joshua, are we seeing any shift in approach to women customers with this shift also in women's leadership in the industry? I think we may have talked about it on the last episode, but women are buying more jewelry than they were in the past. Traditionally, uh, diamonds in particular were, were bought by a man for a woman. And plenty of people in the industry have said that they're, they're seeing a much more of a shift towards women 
self-purchasing, uh, buying jewellery for themselves. So I, I guess it, the two trends um, in some way reflect each other. Avi, what's your take on the shift? Well, it, it makes sense to me, and, uh, and, and I think it's a natural one, given that uh, all the trends we're seeing in the, amongst millennial um, consumers, people are getting married later, firstly. Um, women are, are, in general, more career-focused, um, before they, uh, meaning that they're they're working longer before they get married, and they're more financially independent. I think so. A, it's a natural, it's a natural thing that they would have better means to buy their own jewelry. But I think we are living in an age where women feel more independence. They want to exert um, exert their own personality in the jewelry that they buy. And I think um, the trade is is slowly slowly coming to to this realization. I think we also need to recognize that it's still a very male centric industry, particularly in the, amongst the in the manufacturing sector, in the within the midstream, and also in the mining sector. You know, the female appointments that Sonia mentioned were on the retail side, were in the auction houses, on the high end jewelry side of the trade. And um, it's also worth mentioning that uh, the appointment um, at Signet was after the revelations of sexual harassment allegations against um, or previous managements at Signet. So, so it was kind of a precursor in a way to the hashtag MeToo movement, <laughs> a mini jewelry revolution. But I would like to see more women in higher executive positions at De Beers, at Orosa and the other mining companies and also more in the trade as well. So let's hope that as we keep our eyes open in 2018, we see some of those positions filled by women who are able to really get the job done. Before we get to our next segment, and since we're looking back at 2017 with our news team, I thought we'd take this opportunity to hear from you guys about what your highlights of the year were. As you covered the diamond industry all year, what was your favorite story in 2017? Let's start with you, Joshua. We've mostly been um, focused on relatively serious matters up until now. And so I'm going to say that my favorite story of the year was about a 1.3 carat forever marked diamond that got um, eaten by a dog called Bear. The uh, the dog, he went into his owner's room, bedroom, and um, took the engagement ring, which was apparently worth, I think, $15,000, off the bedside table and ate it. They realized this, the owners realized this because the wedding ring was on the floor, so something must have happened. And eventually they took the dog to a, a veterinary surgeon, I think is what Americans call it, not a war veteran. We, we call them vets too. Vets, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, that was war heroes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it turned out that um, that the dog had in fact eaten this, this engagement ring. You can uh, go to diamonds.net to see the photo, the x-ray of the ring inside the stomach. Thankfully it, uh, it came out naturally, got cleaned and... I presume was subsequently um, wearable. Obviously, my favorite part of the story was the headline, A Diamond in the Wuff. And that was, I believe, number 10. It just got into the top 10 stories of the year by the skin of its teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one, Joshua. Are you going to ask me why that's an important story? Joshua. (laughs) Why is that an important story? It's not really, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's just fun to write. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, Sonia... What was your favorite story of 2017? Well, so the people in the office know I get very excited when we get news of diamonds being sold in auctions, especially if they're blue, pink diamonds, big carrots. I'm not into world records, but um, the story I really liked this year is the earrings that sold at Sotheby's in May in Geneva for 
57.4 million, but I'm not interested in world record. I'm just going to tell you is the world auction record for earrings. And they were renamed. It's a pink diamond and a blue diamond. Obviously, fancy vivid blue, internally flawless. And the other one is an intense pink diamond. But what I found more interesting about it, they were renamed. They didn't have a name when they went to auction. And then they became the dream of autumn leaves and the memory of autumn leaves. And I think that's beautiful. And I like this type of stories. And also they were our most liked uh, post on Instagram. So shameless promotion here at Rappaport <laughs> Magazine on Instagram. Definitely check it out. It's awesome. And Avi, how about you? What was 2017 for you? Well, I'm also looking at the at the auction market, but I love a good story. And uh, it, it kind of relates back to what we were talking about earlier about um, traceability and tracking diamonds. But um, Bonham's put on auction in London a set of yellow, of fancy vivid yellow diamonds. And um, for me, it's really about the backstory. They weren't very expensive diamonds. In the end, the set sold for £577,000, which in auction standards is not a, a huge amount. But the backstory is what appealed to me. And if you can picture the scene in South Africa to 1940, where a guy by the name of R.V. Cullinan, who was the son of the famous Sir Thomas Cullinan, who founded the Cullinan Mine, he asked his friend General Pierre de Villiers, who was a director of De Beers, to buy him a set of uh, diamonds on his next visit to Kimberley. And de Villiers um, found his uh, stash of diamonds. And on the way back to Johannesburg or wherever they were going on a train, he met up with Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, who's one of the directors of De Beers, as we all know. And Oppenheimer asked de Villiers what he had found at the mine. De Villiers took out his diamonds from his pocket, as one does, and showed it to him, and, and Oppenheimer said, well, I have something a little better than that, and he took out these yellow diamonds and showed them to de Villiers. And um, the two struck a deal, because the yellow diamonds appealed to de Villiers more than what he, had, what he had found. So they struck this deal on a train between Kimberley and Johannesburg, and those diamonds came to auction at uh, in London in at Bonhams in late 2017. So it again shows um, a bit of romance about the trade, a bit of its earlier beginnings, and how these diamonds have, in a way, stood the test of time, and we know their their provenance um, till this day. Wow, Avi, that's a really interesting tale, and. I have to be honest, mine too is more about the story, maybe necessarily than its impact. But my favorite story of this year is In the Heart of Surat, which was something that you wrote about visiting Surat and the new Kiran Hospital that's opened there, which is really a story about diamonds do good. But uh, what caught me about the story more than anything was how much color was in it about the local people and the local industry. And if you want a story that makes you feel good about diamonds and really gives you a sense of some of the impact that diamonds can have, I highly recommend reading it on diamonds.net. Thank you, David. Appreciate the punt. And Joshua sat down with Jean-Marc Liberer, the CEO of the Diamond Producers Association, to catch up on what the DPA is doing. Hi. So uh, how are you today, Jean-Marc? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks a lot. Great to be with you. Great. And thanks for joining us. So we've just been talking in the studio about our favorite stories of, uh, of 2017. So Jean-Marc, can you tell us what caught your attention last year? What's your favorite story of, of last year? But when it comes to Diamond Story, I mean, it has to be the, uh, the story of Prince Harry and, uh, and Meghan, really, when you think of it. What an extraordinary demonstration of the symbolic power of diamonds. I mean, they, think of it, the center stone 
intentionally sourced from Botswana, a place that the couple cherishes and and that they've they've been to together. And really, the best example of how responsibly managed diamond resources have drawn a whole population out of property. On one side, and on the other side, the outer diamonds coming from uh, a ring from uh, Princess Diana, which have Im- in immense emotional value for Prince Harry. Really, it's a prime illustration, I think, of the enormous uh, symbolic and emotional power of diamonds. And if anyone still doubts it, I think uh, that there is something magical about diamonds. I think that should finish to convince them, really. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you on that, uh, Jean-Marc. I-, I wanted to ask about, nonetheless, about how people see how people in, in the public see diamonds. Because um, I find when I just, outside of a diamond industry context, when I just, I'm just talking to people about what I do, they'll often say, oh, diamonds, they're just, um, they only have value because of De, De Beers marketing and they, they'll use whatever words they want to use that aren't so nice to describe it. Do you think you can change what that average person thinks about diamonds? Yeah, I mean, I think first we need to set the record straight. I mean, I, there are, uh, you know, very diverse opinions when it comes to diamonds, but if there is any any uh, such thing as the average American consumers, he loves diamonds. What is very clear and that is uh, reflected in your comment is that there is a risk that diamonds will be increasingly seen by younger consumers as, as you say, a marketing-created ritual that has no strong reason for being. And uh, that's why real is rare is so important as a property and why we think that's the right message of authenticity and sincerity that really matches the inherent qualities of a diamond. Yeah. You say that it will take time to change the way that consumers perceive diamonds. How will we know that you've succeeded? How will we know in a, uh, in a concrete way that the DPA has, has succeeded in, in what it's aiming to do? Yeah. Well, well, first, you know, what it is aiming to do, just to be, to be completely clear, is really to build or rebuild a, a personal emotional connection between consumers and the diamond category. And as I said earlier, it's been lost to some extent, especially with younger generations. That's really the first priority for the DPA. And, and our horizon is, is essentially long term. And if you think of brands, brands typically have a shorter time horizon. Retailers have an even shorter time horizon, a few quarters. With Real is Rare, Real is a Diamond, our objective is to strengthen the diamond's emotional relevance and symbolic value over and beyond the ritualistic, the ritualistic function that diamonds you know, have been increasingly associated with for generations to come, not just for the next uh, quarter. So it's not going to happen overnight. And bear in mind as well that we've really started investing significantly behind our campaigns only in September 2017. So it's really been four months, I, uh, Joshua, of consistent investment in, in the U.S. and we're filling a, a gap of 10 years. So it'll take focus, it'll take consistency, but we're confident that we're going to be starting to see tangible perception shift impacts through research already this year and that it will translate into demand growth within the next couple of years. So let's talk money. I think, uh, if I'm right, in 2017, the, the DPA budget was uh, $57 million for the year. And some important people in the industry have called for a bigger budget. There have been calls for, uh, for example, a, a $100 million annual budget for next year. Is that realistic? What, uh, how, how do you expect the, uh, the amount of money that you have to use to go up or down? Well, I think the first thing to say, uh, Joshua, is uh, that it's been an extraordinary time of commitment of the members of the DPA 
to go within a year and a half from a $6 million budget to uh, close to $60 million budget. And uh, the approach that I've taken with the DPA is uh, let's start small, let's demonstrate how much value we're creating, let's build our capabilities, and as we do, uh, let's increase our investment. And uh, I think that's the right approach and we're on the right path. So it'd be folly to entrust an organization that doesn't really exist yet, has no track record with $200 million. I wouldn't take them. It wouldn't be responsible. I think, uh, you know, last year uh, we have invested about $50 million in our first real kind of year of investment, which was significant. In 2018, we're looking at investing about $70 million, which uh, means that we'll be able to uh, slightly increase the level of effort in the U.S., while supporting a first uh, a year of campaign in India, we launched our first campaign in November and uh, initiated our first campaign in China. All this while we build our organization, we build our capabilities. You know, we're not here for the next one to three years. We're here for the next couple of decades. That's a quite a significant uh, increase. How much of that seventy million is going to go is going to go on um, marketing campaigns in the U.S. or are we going to see a, a bigger proportion of that uh, going on on India and China than in previous years? Yeah, I mean, last year to to be totally candid, we invested in the U.S. in the last quarter of the year about fifteen million dollars in media, just paid media, and we delivered about a billion paid impression uh, over the year. This year, we're looking at investing about $40 million in paid media in the U.S., of which about $7 million will go in the first quarter. We're kind of phasing our media investment in the U.S. quite evenly across the year because our role is not to drive sales during holiday seasons. That's what brands and retailers do. Our role is to create fertile emotional territory through ongoing presence and an ongoing dialogue with consumers throughout the year so that the brands and the retailers can capitalize on it when they come with their kind of more traffic-building communication. I see. And in terms of that uh, emotional perception of diamonds, we feel that a lot of consumers are fairly skeptical of how mining, diamond mining works, and they maybe are not well inf- either they're not well informed about practices in the diamond mining industry, or they just have um, a very low impression of it. How are mining companies, diamond mining companies, trying to change that uh, perception? It's a very good point, and uh, and yes, I mean that perception is largely driven by the fact that in many consumers' mind. Uh, diamond mining equates artisanal mining. Uh, they got these images of you know, African miners knee-deep in mud as a representative of diamond mining, when we all know that the reality is completely different. And uh, what we found really, Joshua, is it is really hard to generate media interest for our story of diamond mining. And so what we've started to do in the last quarter is really go into paid media strategies to get our message uh, across about the reality of our industry, and one of the things we've done, which you might have uh, you might have seen, is we worked with uh, National Geographic on a number of uh, pieces of content, pictures, videos, stories, you know, about some of the most interesting diamond facts and stories, including about mining. But that told through National Geographic voice in their way, and that has achieved tremendous uh, engagement and, and reach. We also worked with the New York Times. You might have seen it on a, a sponsor's photo essay about the coming of age of the Canadian diamond industry, which was a, a, a story told through the voices of three women who work in, a, in two of the mines in the Northwest Territories. And again, it had great resonance. These are just examples, but we'll continue on that track. 
of explaining the reality of the industry. It's not just about mining, it's about the whole industry, it's about the community impact and so on. And importantly, I think, you know, making, providing the trade, including the retail trade with the facts, the stories, the anecdotes, to be able to talk to consumers about it is very important. A final question. In 20 seconds, what would be your response to a, um, a jeweler who said that he or she was considering um, starting to stock uh, synthetic diamonds? Well, in, in one, two seconds, I said don't do it. But in 20 seconds, I'd say approach it as another potential line of business, not as an alternative to diamonds. Synthetics will simply not replace diamonds in fan jewelry and, and for important purchases. I think there may be attempts here and there, but the reality is starting to emerge clearly for, for all of us. They're the beautiful industrial products, but they have no inherent value. Uh, they're highly decorative. They can play a role as such in an offering, but they're not precious gems and, and not fine jewelry I- ingredients. So from there, I'd say, ask yourself what business you're in. And if you want to go into synthetics, ask yourself how you protect your higher value diamond business, how you protect your reputation as a fan jeweler and how you retain the loyalty of your consumers, because whether we want it or not, prices will continue to drop. Jean-Marc, thank you very much, and uh, good luck in your work. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Joshua. While we're on the subject of the DPA, did you guys catch the special supplement that came with the December edition of Rappaport magazine? DPA partnered with Rappaport to produce a magazine within a magazine exploring all the key issues that fuel our passion for the diamond market. That includes the scientific, historic, ethical, commercial, and, of course, the emotional aspects that make our industry so engaging. Whether you're a miner, manufacturer, dealer, or jeweler, this publication is a must-read if you want to gain insight that can add incredible value to your personal and business profile in the industry. Check it out on diamonds.net. Avi, I know leading up to the recording today, you were looking forward to sharing some of your thoughts Thanks, David. You know, when I look back at 2017, we saw the idea of traceability and tracking diamonds really come to the fore. And that gets me thinking about the Kimberley process, which, when it was formed back in 2003, was really the precursor to this trend. The underlying idea is the horrors of Sierra Leone's civil war became known was to give assurances to consumers that the diamonds they purchase are conflict-free. Fast forward 15 years and we see now how insignificant the Kimberley process has become. As a news editor, when the KP is mentioned or I receive some notification about it, I either hit the snooze button or take a slight glance at the content before inevitably moving on to the next item. But I did take note when on the 14th of December, I got an email from Impact, the civil society group formerly known as Partnership Africa Canada, whose founder Ian Smiley was among the architects of the KP, announcing that it was withdrawing from the certification scheme. While the first question I asked was, when and why did they change their name? My second, more gut-felt reaction was that I frankly didn't realize they were still part of the scheme. Impact follows a line of other non-government organizations to pull out, with Global Witness citing its frustrations already back in 2011. In the words of Impact's Executive Director, Joanne Lebert, We have come to the conclusion that the Kimberley process has lost its will to be an effective mechanism for responsible diamond governance. The internal controls that governments conform to do not provide the evidence of traceability and due diligence needed to ensure a clean, conflict-free and legal diamond supply chain. I would have to echo those sentiments largely because the issue of conflict diamonds, at least in the KP's narrow definition of the term, bears little significance today. 
The KP is limited to monitoring the flow of diamonds used by a rebel group to finance their efforts to overthrow governments. In that sense, less than half a percent of global production can be considered a conflict diamond. Of far greater concern are abuses carried out by governments or companies operating in problematic diamond areas, violence within diamond mining communities, other human rights issues, terror financing or money laundering within the trade for that matter. The diamond trade has many defences against those issues, but the Kimberley process is not one of them. The KP is a collaboration between governments, the industry and civil society. And while industry, through its representatives at the World Diamond Council, nobly continue to push for reform, it's also time to call a spade a spade. That is, when a jeweller is dealing with that nervous millennial looking for assurances with a dreamy glint in his eye that the diamond he's about to buy for his fiancée-to-be is free of any dirty business, it is simply not enough to declare that this diamond has a Kimberley Process certificate, therefore it is good. Consumers need more, and the diamond story deserves better. I'm much more excited about the number of programs being developed both by companies and industry bodies that trace a diamond's journey throughout the supply chain, so that at the end of the day, the budding groom can go forth and make his girl happy knowing that before arriving in this store, the diamond was traded on 47th Street by a dealer who bought it from a supplier in Israel or Antwerp, after it was graded in Carlsbad, after being cut in Surat, India, from a piece of rough that was formed over millions of years before it was finally unearthed in Botswana or Russia or Canada, to name just a few responsibly sourced locations. And after saying yes, our bride-to-be will tell her friends the story of their proposal a million times over. And part of that story will be how this beautiful diamond not only made her one happy and lucky girl, but at the same time helped feed thousands of people around the world. From its beginnings 15 years ago, it's that purpose that Kimberley process, I fear, has now lost. Some blunt words for the Kimberley process there. So let's look ahead then. So we saw a lot of trends come in 2017, and I wouldn't be super surprised to see a lot of those trends continuing in the coming year. But is this the year that everything changes? Give me your thoughts in 240 characters or less about what's coming in 2018. So in 140 characters, China, India, Millennials, Diamond, Affluent Market, 220 million people. Is that 140 characters? Actually, it might be 140 characters and it's perfectly matching the 140 million that De Beers has (laughs) invested in its marketing campaign to attract millennials in the US, in India and China. It's a big market. I think that's where the shift is going to happen. De Beers in his Diamond Insight report last year outlined that it's where the young population is. The taste of the Indian and Chinese millennials are changing as well. They want diamond more than they want gold jewelry. That was the traditional for engagement and also for self-purchase. So I think that's where it's going to be. Really, really interesting to see what they do. And also how it's going to affect the manufacturing from the other side because uh, the tastes there are a bit different. They're more interested in the light, for example, on diamonds than the four Cs. They're more interested in... The, it's not so, They're not so much into the big, big rock, but the top quality diamonds on smaller frame. So, yeah. So let's see what, what's happening there. 
Yeah, and it seems that uh, with China, especially, we're seeing growth again in China. It's definitely something to look out for. Um, I don't want to harp on the traceability and, and tracking issue that we've um, we've spoken so much about today, but that is certainly a trend that I, that I think is going to get stronger in the next year. But just on a more sort of micro level, I'm interested to see what certain companies are doing with the acquisitions that they made last year. You know, we saw we we spoke about Signet buying James Allen, and I think. Um, I'm interested to see how that evolves in in 2018 as James Allen sort of settles into the more corporate Signet framework. The other acquisition that took place um, of significance, I think, was that Washington companies bought out Dominion Diamond Corporation, which is a top five miner. They're a Canadian miner, but um, we haven't actually heard from them much uh, since then. And we used to get good information about Dominion's um, mines, and particularly the Akati mine, which is a very important um, source of, of rough diamonds in Canada. And I'm hoping that we'll continue to get that um, flow of information as a journalist. It tells us a lot about the market, and I'm not, unfortunately not very hopeful because Washington Company is not a public company, so they're not um, compelled to publish that sort of information. But I think um, I would use this... Um, platform as a call to Dominion to make yourselves known again and continue the conversation with the industry. And then finally, De Beers um, bought out um, De Beers Diamond Jewelers. They they had a, an equal partnership in the retail chain with um, LVMH and they bought out um, the LVMH um, 50% um, stake and have taken control of their brand again, basically. So I think it'll be interesting to see what De Beers does with the De Beers Diamond Jewelers retail chain now that it's completely in their control again. So that's what I'm looking out for this year. I'm going to pick a relatively um, niche issue, which is uh, automated diamond grading. This is uh, an area that has really been... Um, uh, pioneered by Serene Technologies, they um, they're best known for for providing manufacturing technology to diamond cutters. Uh, but uh, they've uh, about a year ago they launched an automated diamond uh, color and clarity grading technology that enables essentially a computer to look at a diamond and determine what um, what color and clarity it is. If this becomes uh, widespread and there ends up being a lot of demand for diamond certificates that have this type of grading, then uh, that could significantly change the diamond grading industry, given there's plenty of labs out there, laboratories out there that, are, that have many human beings sitting looking at diamonds all day, judging their qualities. My initial um, instinct is that it will be it won't take off so much, uh, given that People um, still uh, uh, admire certain brands such as the GIA, but uh, it's certainly something to look out for this year, whether whether this type of grading will gain uh, interest. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And um, uh, grading is, is, such a, is considered a, somewhat of a, a subjective science, and this really brings a more exact aspect to it, um, certainly in the colour and clarity grading of the diamond. But I, and, I, and I think it's worth noting that it's not just Serene that's involved in this. And my, my understanding is that the GRA and, and De Beers have also developed this yes. um, capability, but they haven't yet made it um, their sort of platform that they, they're doing the full four C's on an automated basis. So I, I think it'll be, it's definitely something to watch in the coming um, year or two if if those two companies in particular 
um, adopt this um, automated um, platform. Avi, knowledgeable as always. Thank you. Thank you, David. I'm impressed by your knowledge. Thank you very much, Sonia. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. It was fun. And Joshua, it's nice to have you at the table and not on the girdle. Very good. Very good. Happy New Year to each of you, and Happy New Year to our listeners. Join us next time for the In the Loop, and keep your eyes out for the Rappaport Research Report, the January issue of Rappaport Magazine, and all the other great things coming to you from Rappaport all the time. See you next time. Thank you.